Welcome back to the Coffee and Bible Time podcast. For those that may be listening for the first time, our podcast is an offshoot from our main platform, YouTube. Our channel is called Coffee and Bible Time, where our goal is to help people delight in God's word. We also have a website and storefront with Bible studies, prayer journals, and more. I'm Mentor Mama, and today we are going to be talking about the people that were there at the very beginning of creation. And we're going to hear a fresh account of how they fit into God's unfolding plan of redemption. You know, most Christians are familiar with the opening words of Genesis that say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But beyond those iconic words, sometimes things can seem to get a little hazy. So our guest today, Dan Darling, author of the book, The Characters of Creation, will be talking about the men and women present at the beginning of the world and help clear up some of the questions that may arise when we read through this beautiful book of beginnings, Genesis. But first, a word from our sponsor. You already know that we at Coffee and Bible Times strive to help people delight in God's word. That's why we love Alabaster and their inspiring Bibles. In addition to the visually appealing design, these Bibles are an engaging way to delve deep into God's word. You can purchase books of the Bible individually or in bundles. Either way, your faith is sure to flourish. Alabaster Company has perfectly designed an intersection of creativity, beauty, and faith in each and every book. Use our promo code CBTPROMO or find our link below to get 10% off your order and let's experience God's beauty together. Daniel Darling is an author, pastor, and leader. He is the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dan is a best-selling author of several books, including The Characters of Creation, The Characters of Easter, and The Characters of Christmas. Dan is a columnist for World Magazine and a regular contributor to USA Today. Dan speaks and preaches around the country and is regularly interviewed on radio and television, including MSNBC's Morning Joe, CNN, and Fox. He is the host of the popular podcast, The Way Home, as well as a weekly show, What Do You Think with Dan Darling. Dan and his wife, Angela, reside in Texas with their four children. Please welcome Dan. Hey, it's great to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, When I received your book about the characters of creation, I knew that this was going to be good because there are so many interesting details. I think that um, a lot of people maybe just never took the time to kind of sink their teeth into. So let's start out... Um, by talking about, you know, in the beginning of this book, you introduce a very lengthy description about God as the supreme character in the story of Genesis. And you write this, but before we can understand the characters of creation, 
we must first bow ourselves before the author of creation. God is not just another actor in this drama, a figure we mold and massage into a deity of our liking. Instead, the Bible opens by describing the formation of the world as an act that begins with the one who had no beginning, who is always there. So tell us, why is this chapter so important to you? And why do you encourage folks to read it before they read about the characters of creation? Well, I I think it's important um, because, you know, I've written this character series, Characters of Christmas, Characters of Easter. But when you're writing characters of Genesis, you know, the supreme character in the beginning of the Bible is God. You know, the Bible opens up, you know, I had a teacher in seminary that said the Bible doesn't begin with what we think about God, but it begins with how, what God declares about himself. And I think it's really important that Genesis makes a statement that in the beginning, God, uh, it's a profound statement. And so I think before we have to, before we try to understand Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and uh, Noah and his sons and, um, all the characters that we find, we have to understand God, that God is the source of all of this. Um, And I really didn't want to make it another chapter because I didn't want to reduce God to just another character. Like he's one of these, you know, 10 people. So I really felt like in the intro and the opening statement, it was important to do that. I also think in some ways in the American church, sometimes we're, we're guilty of domesticating God, making him safe, making him on our level. I mean, it's true in a sense that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so Jesus is God among us. So we, we can see and understand God in person of Jesus, Jesus, who is fully human. And yet God is awesome. He's holy. He's transcendent. And I try to make the case that this is the kind of God we want and need. We don't need a God who's like us. We don't need a God who is easily manipulated we need a god who is all powerful all knowing and and so i hopefully i can i sort of set the tone in that first opening pages yes definitely you know my my brain when i start to think about all those things kind of starts going you know because it's just so god is so uh amazing to think about um well most people read God's call of Adam, where are you, as God catching Adam. But you see this more as an act of grace of God toward Adam and by extension to us. Help us understand that. Yeah, it really is. I mean, when I read, I've read Genesis 3 a lot a lot in my life, you know, just my whole life. I've read that passage where Adam and Eve is caught red-handed and uh they they've they've disobeyed god and i don't quite think we grasp what the entrance of sin into the world how devastating it is for the world how terrible sin is you know sometimes we we sort of laugh about sin we we talk about our favorite desserts as sinfully delicious or something like that but sin when it came into the world brings forth death and everything we see around us the brokenness the the violence the taking of innocent life division uh 
you know, all kinds of evil around us that we're, we, we're exposed to. That's all because sin has sort of marveled its way through the human experience. It's even cursed the planet in, in, in the sense that we have earthquakes and wildfires and all these things. So it was devastating. And yet when you, when you read God asking after Adam, he, um, he says, Adam, where are you? Obviously, God knew where Adam was because he's omniscient. God, would, God wasn't trying to find something that he had misplaced. He really was seeking after Adam. And I, I see those words, where are you, as words of grace, that God is pursuing Adam. And this is, this is the story of, Christ, of Christianity, that God is pursuing sinners, that God is going after sinners. He has not left us in our sin, but he's coming after us. And all of us in some ways can say that at some point in our lives, the father came after us and said, where are you? Uh, those are words of grace. Caught in his sin, trying to cover his sin himself was an inadequate. He needed God to cover his sin. Of course, that's the, the picture of salvation, that God has sent Jesus to cover our sin for us. He's come after us. When I think of that, image of God coming after Adam, I think of the father of the prodigal son running after his son, mm. you know, hiking up his 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 um, garment so he could run faster and, and go see his son. This is the God we serve. And so even in the opening pages of Genesis, even in Genesis 3, with the weight of all that has happened there with the fall, you see a God of grace. Yeah. Learn what theology is and how to study God within the Bible in course number seven of our In-Depth Bible Study Academy. In this academically built course, you will learn the tools to study God's character and nature within a Bible passage and how to grow closer to God relationally through Bible study. This course titled Theology, Knowing God Through In-Depth Bible Study is packed with teaching lessons, homework, quizzes, and a resource list for personal study. Head to our website, coffeeandbibletime.com, to learn more about the Academy and course number seven today. Use promo code CBT Podcast, that's CBT Podcast, to get 50% off this course right now at coffeeandbibletime.com. Oh, that's a beautiful way of. Uh, interpreting it and I, it, I think it is profound just that um, God like you said um, searched them out immediately and so lovingly well a lot of scholars even some evangelicals doubt whether or not Adam was a real person but you go to great lengths in this book to make the argument that he has to be why is this important yeah, there, there's a lot of debate among scholars about the nature of Adam. Um, Adam or were Adam and Eve real people? Were they really the head, the fountainhead of the human race, the first people? Uh, some people suggest that maybe um, there were humans before Adam and Eve, and God sort of appropriated Adam and Eve as an example of the human race. Or others have, have said perhaps that... Um, you know, there were kind of lesser forms of humans, hominids or something that comes along. and Or maybe Adam and Eve didn't actually exist. And uh, there's a lot of debate about that. 
But I really think there's a lot of things about Genesis that Christians do debate and have debated for 2000 years, you know, how, how exactly old the earth is and, and some of those things. But, but when it comes to Adam and Eve, I really feel like you have to accept the fact that they were real human beings for a few reasons. I think number one, the whole storyline of the Bible depends on it. Here you have Paul in the New Testament. He is assuming that Adam and Eve are real people, as in, you know, as in Adam all die, you know, by one man sin came into the world. He's not talking about Adam as a figurehead. He's not talking about Adam as a symbol. He's saying this actually happened. And then Jesus refers back to Adam in the Gospels and as real people. Um, and Paul says in Acts 17, uh, from one man came all nations, you know. So I don't think we know more than Jesus and Paul. You know, Paul is a Hebrew scholar. He was steeped in Hebrew scriptures. So Paul was, Paul understood all the arguments and, and everything. And of course, Jesus is the son of God. I don't think we're more sophisticated than they are. And so I think we can believe it. It takes faith to believe it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because there are some scientists and, and scholars that feel like maybe if you look at sort of super, uh, you know, natural evidence, it doesn't point that way. I also think the idea that we all came from one, one, one couple really is a, is part of the way that the Bible can unify us in our diversity. Yes. That is different as we are from other people, whether it's uh, ethnically different or any other way, we're really not that different. We're human beings at the end of the day, made in the image of God, fallen sinners who sinned against God and who need salvation in Christ. And so I think the idea that we're all come from one person is a comforting thing. And so I, I think we can believe what the Bible says. I think we can trust it. Um, if Jesus believed it, if Adam believed it, I'm sorry, if Jesus believed it, if Moses believed it, if Paul believed it, uh, it's good enough. It should be good enough for us to believe. Yeah, it sure should. <laughs> well, since Adam was this first human being, you ask readers what it must have been like to wake up as the first human in history. Tell us what do you imagine this would be like? You know, it's interesting when we read Genesis and one of the things I do when I try to write these characters books is that really try to understand what was it like to be him mm -hmm. you know adam is a symbol of the fall uh the first adam and second adam and all that is really important in bible storyline but we also th have to think of him as an actual human being mm -hmm. and to be the first human being there was no template for him to copy he sort of was uh shaped and formed and thrust into this new world um didn't have you know parents to sort of model this for him what would it have been like to be him to walk with god in the cool of the day bible does say that initially he was lonely he it was only him and it does speak to the fact that we we're born for community it's not good for humans to be alone god says you know sort of pausing his creation making a statement that we were born for community but then also what would it have been like to be adam to bear the weight of the sin in the sense that you, because of his decision to disobey God, 
sin now enters and has corrupted the human race. And to bear the weight that every human being after him will be born into sin, that violence and death and mayhem and um, sexual perversion and every other kinds of sin, abuse, all the result of his decision, what would it be like to bear that weight? And yet Adam didn't have to bear the weight of his sin because there would be a second Adam who would come along who would bear the weight of his sin. And in some ways, all of us, in a sense, feel like Adam at times, where we're, we're bearing the weight of, of our sin on our shoulders. We look around and see the decisions we've made, the sins we've committed, the mess we've made of our lives, and it's too much to bear. And the truth is, it is too much to bear. But Jesus came, and he bore that sin. The second Adam bore the sin that the first Adam could not bear, so that we could have freedom. And so I think there's a lot there when you think about Adam as an actual real person. Yes, absolutely. You know, what comes to my mind as well is that Adam, unlike us, saw what perfection was in the Garden of Mm -hmm. Eden and how beautiful and amazing and glorious. And to see then what it was like after when they were put out of the garden uh, I can only That's a great imagine. Point. I can only imagine how it would just be intensified all that much more. Well, let's talk a little bit about Eve. In the chapter on Eve, you write about temptation, and this is one of your quotes. It says, "Because Adam and Eve sinned, we live with this lie embedded in our hearts, embedded in the world around us." The advice that tells us to just follow our hearts, to throw off the shackles of God's good design. As a result, so many sons and daughters of Eve live enslaved to desire. So tell us, what is this lie that is embedded in our hearts? Well, it's 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 a lie that Satan uh, tells us that, um, you know, sin initially begins, I think, with this idea that that God, the father is holding out on us, that he's not a good father, that there's something more. That was what Satan was whispering to Eve, that are you really sure God has given you all that's good for you? He's holding out on you. There's, there's things he's holding back from you. Um, the lie is that um, the only way to really experience life is to sin. You know, you'll, you'll really know good and evil. Well, there's a knowing about good and evil that's healthy, a discernment to know here's good, here's evil. But then there's a knowing that the Bible talks about that's more of an experience of entering in. And that kind of knowledge, that kind of experience is not ultimately for our good. You don't have to experience sin to understand its devastation. Uh, I also think the lie is that you can be like God. This idea that you can bear the weight of, that only God can bear. We were created as finite creatures. We're created as humans made to worship God. The lie that the serpent whispered to Eve was that you can be all-knowing. You can be omniscient. You can be all of these things. And the truth is, in, in um, tempting Eve to sin, the serpent made the promise that Eve would be kind of superhuman, more like God. But actually, when we sin, we become less than human. Sometimes we'll say, well, I'm only human. 
when we sin. Actually, sin is a distortion of our humanity. We become more, we become actually more animalistic. You know, Eve and Adam had dominion over the serpent. They had dominion over the animal kingdom, right? And yet here they were taking orders from animals. And so everything was was uh, sort of upside down and distorted. Yes. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, Eve is both the one who was deceived and also the, the mother of all living. And you write that through the woman, God's promise of redemption was delivered. So explain why this matters. It does matter. I mean, childbirth obviously is, is kind of mixed, right? In terms of um, there's, there's pain in childbirth, but then it's also a, uh, a real uh, joy to be able to bring life into the world. And when God is telling Eve that um, you know, Eve is the mother of all living, uh, he's talking about this violent clash between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It would be through women that God's promise would be fulfilled. If you think about not just Eve giving birth to the next generation, which is a sign that even in a fallen world, God wanted human beings to continue with those part of his plan. But also think of the miraculous births throughout the Bible's narrative. Um, Sarah, Abraham and Sarah having a miraculous birth. And through that birth, God's promise of of, of a nation and a redeemer comes comes through think of hannah who prayed for god to give her a child and through her child we got samuel who's a, a judge and a priest and uh a ruler in israel and then of course it was through um the birth of jesus the miraculous birth of jesus the virgin birth of jesus through a woman again God's promise is delivered. And so there's a storyline throughout scripture that, that um, and, and Paul refers to this in Timothy, that he was saved yet through childbirth. And it, through women, God's plan of redemption was, was, um, was enacted. And so Christianity, the story of Christianity actually elevates women. It elevates the status of women. And if you're reading this in the ancient Near East, this was radical. The idea that women had full, um, that women were as fully human as men, that actually God through women would enact his promise of redemption. If you're reading this in the Greco-Roman culture, uh, at the time of Jesus, in the time of the early church, this was also radical. The idea that God would use women in such a way. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew, mentions four women, which is kind of unusual for genealogies to mention that. So I think it's it's really um, important to the storyline of, of, of the gospel that through women, God has uh, brought about redemption and through childbirth, uh, that, that it's a sign that God is always birthing something new in, in, in the world. God is in the business of creation and recreation. And this is what he's doing in us. And each of us, when we become Christians, God is birthing something new. There's a new birth happening in us. So I think all that fits together. Yes, it does. Oh, that's really, that's a super cool way to look at it. And that, cause I think too, just having given birth to three children and seeing just how miraculous uh, it truly is. Um, 
it it just yeah something only god can do and it's just kind of is mind-blowing well you give a, a chapter to both cain and abel and you even see in Cain's story examples of God's grace and yet Cain's rejection of grace. Why is Cain such a warning about the dangers of self-worship? Well, uh, Cain's whole, his whole story is that he, um, we, we don't know the exact details of how often they would, Cain and they would bring their, their sacrifices. We just know that there's that one moment where uh, Abel brought a sacrifice, animal sacrifice, and Cain brought the fruits of the ground, and God rejected Cain's sacrifice. Um, clearly, there was a there was a pattern there, and God had probably given them direction, but we don't know that. All we know is that God rejected it. But even in Cain's story, you see you see grace. Um, God warning, God's rejection of Cain's sacrifice was not was judgment, but it was it was also. Um, an act of grace to say, Cain, there is a way. God rejected his, Cain's way, but there's a way to do God's way. Cain is kind of symbolic of wanting to approach God on our own terms, that God has made a way for us to approach him. Um, and, and those of us who understand the Bible uh, on this side of, of Jesus' death and resurrection, God has made a way for us to approach him, and that's through Jesus. The Bible says that if you have the Son, you have life. You know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. God has made a way to be approached. If he's God, if he's truly transcendent and all-powerful. But we also, we, we typically want to come on our own way. And Cain symbolizes a kind of false religion that says, I can work my way to, to God. I can do it my way. Well, God rejected it, but Cain had an opportunity. And God also warned Cain and said, sin lies at the door of your heart. In other words, if you don't take care of this sin, it's going to grow and fester. And we all know that, that when we let sin grow and we nurture it, uh, James says that sin, when it conceives, brings forth death. And we see that, that Cain out of jealousy slays his brother. Um, he has, God sees what he's done. It says Abel's blood cries to him from the ground. That no act of violence goes unnoticed by God. And yet God gives him grace. Instead of destroying him in the moment, he puts a mark on him of some kind, maybe a physical mark or something else, to protect him. And yet Cain, we see in his life, he goes further and further away. He moves geographically further and further away from his parents, further away from God. Uh, he's a symbol in some ways of what theologians call common grace, that God protects even those who don't acknowledge him. And you wonder with Cain, was there ever a moment where he said, I want to repent. I want to come back to God. I want, I want to be right with, with God. But he, he seems to just heart, his hard, heart hardens and he moves away from God. So I think he's a warning for us that don't ignore the warnings that God sends into our lives. If you're a young person, God's giving you warnings through your parents or your church. You've been exposed to the message of, of grace, of the gospel. The more you ignore it, the more you reject it, the more your heart can get hardened away from God. Uh, and yet I think there's also hope for the Canes out there that as long as you have life, there's opportunity to repent and come back to faith. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the most powerful exercises I ever did in a Bible study was just to chart out 
you know, from my birth till now and just see like before I was even a believer, how God was extending me grace over and over and over again. And um, yeah, your message there about about Cain and God's grace is so powerful. Well, Abel, you describe as the world's first martyr and Hebrews laud him as a hero of faith. What can we learn from his short life? We don't know much about Abel other than he was faithful in the moment that he was called. Uh, he, he brought a sacrifice to God in the way that God had asked him to do that. Um, you know, Cain's sacrifice was much more spectacular. It was much more beautiful. Abel's was... Uh, but Abel's was the one that God required and shows us that faithfulness is more important to God than spectacular achievements and all of those things. But the book of Hebrews kind of says that he is a martyr. He, he by faith, he, he approached God. Um, and, you know, he, he was martyred for his faith. He, he was killed simply because he obeyed God and he did what God asked him to do. And, Sometimes when you follow God, there's going to be people that oppose you. Sometimes people close to you. Sometimes people that are related to you. Sometimes people that you think are your friends are going to be mad that you are following God. There's going to be jealousy and envy of the joy and relationship you have with God. Abel was mur martyred for his faith, but God saw his, God saw it. Cain thought he got away with it. He, he killed Abel, thought, no one's going to see this. My parents won't see this. Nobody around me will see it. But God saw it. And it just shows us that we have a God of justice, that every drop of innocent blood that is shed, God sees it. It cries to him from the ground. Every life is precious to him. And you think about around the world, so many Christians are um, martyred for the faith. So many Christians are persecuted. They're imprisoned. Some are killed simply for naming the name of Jesus, simply for going to God in the way that God asked, asked to be approached. And this was Abel. Abel approached God in the way he asked to be approached. And so I, I think we should pray for our, the martyrs. Those of us who have freedom, uh, religious freedom, should pray for those around the world. I, I am a big fan of Voice of the Martyrs, and they do some great work mm -hmm. highlighting our brothers and sisters around the world who today are meeting in caves and sort of uh, underground and secret in order to uh, live out their faith god sees them and hears them and abel is a great symbol of that i think yes you know we'll put a link to the voice of the martyrs down in the show notes because i agree with you that is an excellent organization and something that we feel you know something that we can actually do is be praying for for those people we still have our coupon code available for you guys if you wanted to do online counseling um, with Christian counselors. It's all online. It's via Zoom. You can pick who you want your counselor to be. Very reputable. They all have counseling degrees. So this isn't like some random on the Internet. My mom kind of has a personal testimony to it. Yes, so I actually have done some counseling sessions with Faithful Counseling, and what I really loved about it was that you can actually put in like different qualities that you're looking for in a counselor and specialties, male, female, if they have experience tackling different issues. And so 
I really loved that idea that I could go through and kind of pick the one I wanted. And then um, during this COVID season, it was really applicable anyway, since I couldn't leave my house for counseling, that I actually could just do it online. And you even have the opportunity to do a Zoom type call with them, or you can just do um, a phone call, whatever works best for you. And so it was just really great to have access to counseling when you, when you need it, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if you guys want 10% off your first month of doing this, you can go to getfaithful.com slash coffee and Bible time, and you get 10% off your first month. And of course it is cheaper than traditional in-person counseling anyway. So overall, it's just a good deal. We really recommend it, but let's just get on to the podcast. Oh, Well, one other thing, too, is that you have the option of with your counselor that they are Christian counselors. And so if you want, they will actually pray for you, which I thought was so cool. At the end of each of my counseling, she prayed for me and my issues. Oh, wow. Thanks for that. Well, the Bible is full of some very interesting and crazy stories. I know right now I've been reading through the book of Ezekiel, and there's some crazy stuff in there. Um, But let's talk about the mystery of the Nephilim. What are we to make of this story of the sons of God coming to the children of men and what some think to be superhuman creatures? Well, it's a it's a fascinating story, and it's hard to make sense of it in Genesis. I've read it my whole life, um, and trying to make make sense of what it is. And really, Christians have debated this throughout church history. Um, you have this where the Bible talks about the sons of God visiting the daughters of men, and this was one of the signs that God was going to judge the world. The signs that evil had reached a fever pitch. So I think, I think um, there's there's a lot for us to think about. Christians have debated this. There's one of two things. Some Christians throughout church history have felt like this was symbolic. The idea of sons of God is a symbol symbolic. You you have the line of Seth and you have the line of Cain, and it's showing that the the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are taking two different courses. And God is going to preserve a righteous line through which comes the nation of Israel, through which comes the Messiah. Then you have this unrighteous line. And I think you see that throughout Genesis. Others say, well, the language is pretty descriptive, and it's hard to come to any other conclusion other than that it's angels and women, you know, cohabitating. Um, And so, you know, the reformers, Luther and Calvin insisted, no, it's not these superhuman creatures, animal I'm sorry, uh, uh, angel and humans cohabitating, having these super creatures, the Nephilim. Others have said, yes, it has to be, you know, some of the early church fathers like Augustine. And then, you know, in modern days, I I probably listened to and read almost every sermon or lecture or thing on this to try to make sense of it. And I I came away thinking, I don't, I'm not really sure. I do think the one thing we can draw from this is that, um, um, there is a, there's a there's a sense of um, spiritual warfare that the sin in the world, the evil in the world, had gotten so bad that God had to 
judge the world. But it's a sense of spiritual warfare that we're not fighting flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. So, you know, the these Nephilim, these superhuman creatures, it's interesting, they show up again in the story of Israel and land of Canaan. They show up in, in Jude and Second Peter when they're talking about God's judgment of the wicked world. We don't quite know what's going on here. And I'd, I'd love to go to heaven and when we go to heaven and figure out where these angel and humans cohabitating, creating um, superhuman creatures, or were these, um, was this just symbolic? We don't know. But we do know that we're fighting a spiritual battle, that we don't fight flesh and blood, principalities and powers. And we got to take, take it seriously. Take the, this is a lesson that we got to take sin seriously and take seriously that um, there's a, a spiritual battle going on. But Christ has defeated sin and death in the grave, and he has is, he is defeated the enemy powers. Yes, he sure has. And I think, like you said, it's just kind of, it's it's one of those stories in the Bible that is just very complex and <laughs> difficult to, to really wrap your mind around it. Um, well, let's talk about your chapter on Noah. You describe the faith of Noah who was unlike his contemporaries followed God. And we forget how hard this must have been day after day, obeying God and enduring mockery and all. Tell us more about Noah and what we can learn from his faith. Well, Noah is a great example of faithfulness. The Bible says he's the only righteous man. This is someone who was willing to live against the culture uh, even though he was the only one, uh, quite courage to say, I'm going to live according to what, what God says, even though everyone else is going a different way. Uh, we need this kind of courage today, both in our young people, both in Christians, everywhere. Not not a kind of, uh, you know, there's a way to say, I'm just going to be angry all the time and and be contrary, contrary just for the sake of it. No, we're not talking about about that, about you know, we should have kindness and civility in all the way we act. But to follow God is to be against the world in many ways. And Noah was willing to do that, him and his family. And imagine what it would have been like for him to say to everyone else, I've got this special word from God that God is going to judge the world with rain. There'd never been rain. So they thought he was crazy. And God told me to build this boat. And they think, you're really lost. You've really lost it. Um, day after day he's building that boat and you know when we think of the ark we think of this big massive structure but it was built a day at a time it was built a piece of wood and a nail at a time this is how a faithful life is built it's built one day at a time one step at a time a passage of scripture at a time a conversation with someone at a time uh, one at a time uh all that adds up to a life at the end of faithfulness. And Noah is a great example of, of that kind of faithfulness that it's not often in the big splashy things, but it's showing up every day. Noah showed up every day for a hundred years, preaching faithfully, building faithfully, and leading his family in that way. And God, God blessed his faithfulness. We also see the ark as a sign of God's promise that uh, it's a sign. Jesus 
referred back to it, and so did Paul and others. It's a sign of God's faithfulness that God uh, will always, you know, the ark is a symbol of, of Christ in that in Christ we are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from God's righteous judgment against sin. Um, and I think it, it reminds us again of that God is right to judge sin and judge the world, but there's all, also a way of escape. You know, the, all those people, there was room on the ark for them, and they resisted God's saving grace. Uh, we, we look at the ark and say, man, how could God, how could God flood the world like that? Well, God warned the world for 100 years, and there was room on the ark. And I think it's the same way today. We say that God's judgment is coming for people, but there's a way of escape through Christ. You can know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He can have forgiveness and he can escape God's wrath against sin. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, I just want to sort of wrap up this discussion on your chapter on Satan. What are some common myths that people have about the enemy of God? Well, uh, I think it's a couple common myths. I think one myth is that as humans, well, one myth, I think, is that we just forget that he's there. And we live in a very um, secular world. So any idea of talk of, of Satan and devils is like, oh, you're just crazy. Um, you know, we live in a world where we want to measure things and see things. But the, the Bible does say there's, there's a spiritual battle out there that Satan is seeking whom he may devour. Paul said we don't fight flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. So Satan is behind a lot of these things. Um, and we have to be aware. The other myth is that we can take on Satan on our, on our own. As human beings, Satan is more, power, is more powerful than us. The idea that we can just take him on, take on temptation in our own strength will fail. But we can uh, resist temptation in the power of the Spirit of God. But the, the most important, the, the, the most, I think, important truth to understand that combats, I think, one of the biggest myths about Satan is that the battle between God and Satan is this evil, is this uh, equal match. That's these kind of two equals duking it out. And God won in the end when Jesus um, cried, it is finished, and he defeated Satan. Uh, sin, death, and the grave. The truth is, Satan is a created being, and Satan is only able to do what God allows him to do. He's on a leash. God is more powerful than Satan. Satan is no match for God. We should understand that, that when Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He really means it, that if God is for us, Satan can't touch us. Now, he can harm us. We can lose our health. We can lose our resources, but we can't lose our status as children of God. When Jesus cried at his finish on the cross, he defeated sin and death in the grave. He defeated the enemy powers. So Satan does seek whom he may devour, but he's a toothless lion if you're a follower of Jesus. We don't have to be subject to his whims and his things. We can flee Satan and flee temptation and flee all those things and, and live in, this, in the uh, power and spirit of God. That's the great news uh, from Genesis. It sure is. Sure is. Amen. The victory is Jesus. Oh, well, Dan, your book is just 
so interesting and obviously packed with way more details than we can discuss here. How can people find out more information about you and your book? Well, uh, they can go to my website, danieldarling.com. Uh, they can go to Amazon or christianbook.com or Barnes Noble or independent books for anywhere you get books, moodypublishers.com and find it. And uh, you can order it there. I encourage folks to get that. It's available on Kindle and uh, hard copy and audible any way you get your books. Uh, and you can follow me. If you go to my website, danieldarling.com. You can sign up for my newsletter. You can follow me on social media there. Love to interact with you. Oh, that's awesome. Well, before we go, I want to ask you some of our favorite questions. Um, what Bible do you use and which translation is it? So I grew up with the King James Version, and there's still a lot of verses that I memorized as a child that I think of those lyrics, and there's some that I just can't escape the King James language. Yeah. Uh, but I have been, for a long time, I was an ESV person. I love the ESV English Standard Version. I still think it's a great version. But lately, I've been using the Christian Standard Bible published by um, Robin and Holman. I just like it's both its accuracy and its readability, but I really like the ESV too. So I, I sort of go back and forth, but I, I kind of write and preach out of the CSB at this point, but I, I like to, to read a lot of translations, especially when there's hard passages to say, okay, how did this trans, set of translators do it versus this one? You know, I went to seminary and taking the first year of Greek really made me honor and respect those who do the hard work of translation, because it's really a difficult thing to go from Greek which is dead language into English. And so I really respect those folks, but I really like the CSB. It's, it's been a, a great Bible to read and, and preach and write from. Oh yeah. Both of those are excellent translations and I can sympathize with you, not personally, but watching my daughter take Greek at Moody, mm. it, she said it was just so hard. Oh, unbelievably. But obviously, it does lend itself to a much deeper understanding. So, well, how about do you have any favorite journaling supplies or anything that you like to use to enhance your Bible study experience? So it's interesting. I'm not a I'm not much of a journaler. Um, I, you know, about ten years ago, I was like, fifteen years ago, I was like, I always used to beat myself up because I don't journal like. I have friends that really do this well. And I just realized, you know, that's just, for me, it, I think my version of journaling is all my writing, you know, articles and books and all that. At yeah. least that's what I tell myself. But when I do my Bible reading, I do really like to, you know, I, I try to shake it up. Um, for several years in a row, I did read through the Bible in a year, which I just love. And I had this little sort of checkoff thing and just getting the content of scripture into me even if every day is not like this aha moment where you're walking forward and in tears and all that, you have some of those, but some days you just, it's getting it in you and then you can draw from it. What's the Bible say? You hide God's word in your heart that you won't sin against him. I think you draw from, from that. Um, and then some years I've just focused on one book, you know, the Psalms or focus, and just going through it in a, in a deep way. Um, and so I, I kind of have different thing that I do every year, but I do like to get up in the morning early, have my coffee, start okay. my day out with the, with, with the Lord. And it's just really, 
I think important for me. And, and I think my prayer life, you know, I think my prayer life has changed a little bit. The more you, the pressures of life, I have children, four kids. I find myself praying in the morning, obviously, but also sometimes late at night, you know, when your thoughts are, and you're thinking about all these things you have to do and just mm-hmm. praying and saying, you know, those are a good time to pray as well. If you, so that's kind of my method. It's not, it's not, that great now if i'm going through a book sometimes i like to have a commentary to help me kind of walk through and say like what am i missing here things like that but awesome well those are yeah i mean everybody does it differently and um, each of us have our own way um how about lastly what is your favorite app or website for bible study tools um, that's a great question. Uh, I, I like to use Logos, you know, for some mm. things to look up. I also, there's a lot of online tools that are great, especially when I'm writing, um, you know, looking up Bible verses, looking up commentaries. Uh, I like a good study Bible. I kind of collect study Bibles and I found them enormously helpful when I'm research doing research. Um, I have, I have a lot of commentaries as well. And those can be really helpful. If I'm going through a particular book, I may buy one or two commentaries on that book just to really dive in deep. But I found study Bibles to be helpful. The ESV study Bible, the CSB, Zondervan, the you know, there's an archaeological study Bible. There's there's a there's a number of them that I have, and I'm I'm always collecting them. Those are, I find those helpful, not just with the commentaries, but a lot of them have really helpful charts oh, yes. to figure out the timeline of what's happening. Mm-hmm. or different characters or trying to figure out some of those things. So I, some of the background information about some of the, uh, the times in which the books, Bible books are written. So I, I really encourage folks to have a few good study Bibles. They could really enhance your, your, uh, your knowledge of scripture. Yes. Yes. I completely concur. And I would also mention the Moody Bible commentary as well. That's one that I have. It's kind of nice because it's all, all in one big book, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. but it it is a great resource as well. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being here today to share about your book and your fresh insights into the beginning of the Bible story and for our listeners i just want to encourage you to pick up a copy of dan's book called the characters of creation you can find the link in our show notes and please also head over to our blog where you can interact with us about this podcast and share your comments and finally head over to the coffee and bible time website for our prayer journals that will help guide and document your prayer life at coffeeandbibletime.com. We also have two new courses on how to pray using our prayer journal and prayer binder. Well, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We love you all. Have a blessed day.